Every play, every musical, begins with some writer putting words on a page. Hello, and welcome to Stagecraft, the Broadway radio podcast that talks to playwrights and musical book writers about the shows they've created. My name is Jan Simpson, and my guest this week is the very busy Dominique Mariso, who recently won an Obie for her play Pipeline, which ran at Lincoln Center Theatre last summer and who is now a Residency 5 playwright at Signature Theatre, where Paradise Blue, the first of the three productions she will do with the company, is running through June 17th. And on top of all that, her first musical, Ain't Too Proud, about the Motown group The Temptations, is scheduled to begin performances at the Kennedy Center on June 19th. Hello, Dominique Mariso. Thanks for joining us. Hello. We usually start these conversations by telling uh, listeners what the play is about. So could you describe Paradise Blue for them? Uh, Sure. You know, it's a play about uh, 1949 Detroit. Uh, It's the year that a housing act got passed in the city to um, basically get rid of this very thriving black business community that was existing in the city at the time. And so uh, Paradise Blue sort of explores that that community that had a really strong jazz community as a part of it. And uh, lots of famous jazz artists used to come through Black Bottom, Detroit, and Paradise Valley. And so this is a story of Paradise Valley, but it's really a story about a group of jazz musicians and, um, and the women around them. And what happens when uh, one of those musicians is troubled and gets approached by the city to sell his jazz club and how that's going to impact everyone around him. Uh, but it is also a story about the women in the community and what happens when they're starting to learn and bump up against their ideas of womanhood in a time of a male-dominated community. Where did you get the idea for this play? Uh, this Well, it's part of a three-play cycle on my hometown of Detroit. So mm-hmm. one of the ideas I, I, th- that it stemmed from was from trying to tell a story on three different eras that were really impactful to changing the landscape of my city. I mean, when you talk about Detroit to certain elders, Black Bottom, Detroit, they remember being gentrified uh, out of that area and, and, and sort of that, that, that community, uh, a freeway is now running through that community. Huh. And so these historic uh, communities, they they remember it well, and I wanted to go back and explore this time. Uh, but I also, I got the idea also because I was interested, and this is years ago, I wrote this play in 2010, hmm. um, and, and it, I was very interested in gentrification then, and now gentrification has even gotten way more aggressive, I think, across yeah. the nation, but I was sort of looking at what happens how does it happen, not just externally from, like, you know, um, the, uh, developers and those in political power who can, who have, you know, the, the, the bandwidth, really, and the, you know, power to destroy a community externally to, to go in and change policy and, you know, move people around. But, and, but also within a community, how everybody from that community doesn't see and, and value the community the same way, mm-hmm. how they can also participate in the destruction of their own community. And so those were two things that I, I wanted to explore. You mentioned uh, the trilogy, Detroit's Your Hometown. And did you start off to do a, a trilogy? I think we should name the other two plays, uh, Detroit 67 and, yes. and Skeleton Crew. 
did you start out to do a trilogy about your hometown or or did it just develop as you were writing the plays that they would be a trilogy I started out uh, with the trilogy I had you know I had been reading August Wilson's 10 play cycle about his hometown of Pittsburgh and I thought wow man the people of Pittsburgh must feel so good (laughs) when they read this man's story they must feel like they are so loved they must feel so um, immortalized you know he's sort of scribing their history and documenting them into like a, a theater canon forever you know and I thought, man, I want to do that for Detroit. Hmm. Um, but ten plays felt ambitious, so I thought I could do three. <laughs> you know, uh, but I also there were just three eras that were really interesting to me, and I like the number three. It's a, it's a good number for me, so I thought those were the three I wanted to to look at um, for myself. I was wondering how you chose uh, the the three eras. I think we should say again for the reader, Paradise Blue is forty nine. Yeah, 1949. And Detroit um, 67 is obviously 1967. 1967. Mm-hmm. And Skeleton Crew is set in the autumn. 2008. 2008, okay. 2008 so, and the auto, in the auto industry and, and looking at the foreclosure crisis of Detroit in 2008. So you chose them sort of pivotal moments um, yeah. in the history of the city. But another thing that they have in common is that music seems to play a role. Um, It plays it most prominently in Paradise Blue because it's about jazz musicians. But but music also seems to play a role in the other two as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, In Detroit 67, obviously the music is Motown Mm -hmm. um, because that I just can't even imagine growing. My parents grew up in that time in Detroit, and I just sort of felt like I was transporting back to them and to their soundtrack. Um, uh, and, and it was, you know, Motown. I mean, I'm also working on a musical right now about the Temptations. So Motown and Detroit and this relationship to the city and, and how it was uniting a nation, but also a nation that's divided in social unrest. That's sort of profoundly the, the narrative of Detroit 67. So uh, it was important to use that soundtrack. Um, I think with uh, my place. Uh, skeleton crew you, the music is the uh, the sound of like I call it Jay Dilla inspired beats you know um, Jay Dilla is like a legendary hip hop producer out of Detroit everybody in hip hop and, and out of Detroit you know we, we love Jay Dilla um, but his music also he has a, a, a album of, of beats that he's produced and it's called Donut and it's very factory inspired music and so his production like the, the sound of the auto industry and of Detroit is in his hip hop and so for me when I think of sound of Skeleton Crew it is it is that factory hip hop sound that I think Jay Dilla captured and that I think is in the spirit of our home Has music in, infused your other plays in a similar way or is it just the Detroit plays because when you when you talk about it, I think, wow, right, jazz and then Motown and then hip-hop, I can uh, see it. Does music inspire you yeah. in, in your other writing as well? Oh, absolutely. You know, first of all, I'm married to a music artist from Detroit, so okay. that's part of it. <laughs> you know, my, my husband is a hip-hop artist, Jay Keys is his name, and so he, he and I, I mean, our whole lives are centered around music. But, you know, in my place, Sunset Baby, uh, I do a lot of Nina Simone. She's the, the only soundtrack to Sunset Baby in a, in a way. You know, I wrote to Nina Simone's music 
to write the play, I named a character Nina. After, hmm. and, and my character in the play is named after Nina Simone. So she uh, she knows that she's named after Nina Simone. So we talk about Nina Simone in the play. You know, so yeah, I mean, I just think uh, music in particular, I mean, music in general, I think world music is... is uh, it speaks to like what the cultural rhythms and the stories that are a part of a people. And for me, black music has just been something that I grew up on that has shaped, you know, my relationship to, you know, a time period, but also to a, a movement and to a particular pain and an oppression that a people are going through. So, you know, hip hop is a rebel music, but so is jazz. So is bebop. Mm-hmm. And so to, to, to have all these, and Motown, you know, was so, uh, Barry Gordy, you know, was a, a factory man and he was a, a boxer. I mean, he did a lot of things, you know, and uh, for him to build his own company, there's like an engine of hustle and, and, and hard work and perseverance that's in all of that music that sort of, I feel like is ripe for storytelling. Another thing I noticed about this particular play, at least to me, there seemed to be like a film noir quality about yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Was that something that you intended or? Um... Totally, totally. I mean, you know, I, I like to play with genre. I mean, what's theater for if not to play mm-hmm. all over the place, you know? And so to me, um, Paradise Blue is unlike any other part of my trilogy because we ta- we don't just change era, we change form, you know? Well, I say that, but you know, Skeleton Crew changes form a little bit too because we have uh it becomes really, um, we use multimedia sometimes as skeleton crew. You know, I bring in like the ethereal world, the spiritual world of the factory. But Paradise Blue probably is even larger spiritual story. Um, and so it has a lot of elements of, of mystery, noir, and, y- you know, uh, I, I call it like the jazz and liquor. It's, it's, it's sort of my mystery play. And so I, I just, I feel like I, I want to see black folks and black characters uh, in every kind of genre and story that there is. Mm-hmm. So I want to, I like to play with that. I want to see like a noir femme fatale, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. I want to see us in everything because we are, we're, we're in everything just like everyone else. And so I want to, I want to make it visible there. You started out as an actor yourself. Yes, I'm still an actress. <laughs> Why made the change to writing? What made you, you know, start it, I don't look at it as a, I, I don't look at it as a change. I look at it as an extension, right? You know, so when I was in college, I went to school for theater performance. I was an acting major, mm-hmm. and while I was in college, um, about my third year, I just felt like there was I wasn't studying enough writers of color. Uh, I didn't study any writers from where I felt with my cultural canon, and I felt like I, I just wanted to do work that mm-hmm. reflected who I was too, you know, um, so then I thought I'll write the work. Mm-hmm. And so I started to write plays in college um, to be able to find voice for myself as an art, as an actor and as a multifaceted artist and to make space for other people. And I think that that's when I realized like, oh, if I write, I cannot just act for my, have a role for me. I can make a role for two other girls in my program. That sort of was the bug for me to start also being a playwright, but I had been a, a writer. I was a poet. I've been a writer since I was a kid. Hmm. The, yeah. the stories that you tell are set 
uh, almost entirely in a black world, black community. And there are they are stories that we haven't seen before uh, in it. You've you've been quite outspoken about the whole subject of elitism and um, privilege yes. in in the culture of uh, American theater. And I wonder, you wrote. Um, a really sort of rallying cry piece back in American theater in in 2015, and I wondered if you've seen any progress, any change over the last few years. Uh, you know, on some levels I have, and on some levels I've seen, you know, not not nearly enough progress, and I've seen some regression. But I think we're we're just in a moment right now in the in the nation, in the world and in theater where um but theater to me moves a little slower frankly <laughs> than, really? than a lot of than a lot of other industries and that's been shocking um because i think we pride ourselves on being progressive and ahead of things but the more i've worked in theater um you know we're ahead we like to we, we pat ourselves on the back a little so much that we're not doing the actual work um because we're not being you know like it's hollywood it's easy to go shame on you Hollywood and there's so many people in the nation that are watching movies and TV so they get to weigh in and tell us we're doing badly you know <laughs> but uh, but with theater it's so it's so elitist you know the loudest voices the, the most predominant voices are the you know the patrons who can you know spend $150 on tickets and buy a season and they're not going to say shame on you theater you know <laughs> they're gonna, like thank you for giving me my you know uh, culture for the week, you know, but but they're not looking around and going, where are the other people? So we we as in theater we go, well we're we're putting them on stage, so we're, we're progressive, you know. And I go, well we're putting them on stage, but what does that feel like to be a, a, a artist of color on stage in front of a predominantly white audience? That feels like every other era <laughs> that, yeah. that that artists of color have been performing since the beginning of time. That doesn't feel progressive. And so I, I sort of started a hashtag of no more Jim Crow theater. We can't keep having this idea of, you know, we're just here for the entertainment of others. We have to be participants with each other. We have to be a community. And that means that community needs to, we cannot have people on stage and not have see reflections of themselves out in that audience, no matter who those people are. It's just not cool. Um, and it feels weird. And so I think that that, especially when you are from uh, an open, a particularly marginalized group to never see a reflection of yourself out in the audience or always see yourself in pockets and, and not it feels like you're not here for it's not equal and that somehow the work that you're creating is not getting to the people that you're creating it about. That's ridiculous. Do you think it's primarily then an economic issue or a marketing issue a communicate what kind of issue I think it's a marketing issue I think it's a marketing issue I say that because you know a lot of times when it gets down to the, the excuse I think theaters make is economic and that's and I think that's bogus because, for instance, the black community will spend their money to go see a concert. I know that we would spend our money to go see Tyler Perry's whatever town. We would go see Set It Off the Musical is not having problems getting audiences. So why aren't, why isn't theater, why isn't traditional, you know, this traditional circuit of theater not getting those same audiences? They're not valuing those audiences. They're not even 
looking at how those audiences are buying, how they're, what their spending patterns are, how they buy tickets. If you're a good marketer, which my husband is also a marketer, he worked in the music industry as a marketer for over 10 years. He is always telling me um, that theater is a dinosaur when it comes to marketing because they just have no clue about the people that they're trying to market to. They're un- uneducated about the people they're trying to market to, that they say that they want. They're not willing to do the work. So to me, the true thing is you really have to go into those villages and build relationships with those communities and also learn who they are. Because we think we know each other better than we really do. That's Mm -hmm. the other thing we're not willing to admit. When I'm, again, thinking about the play uh, Paradise Blue, um, particularly the women are women that would be relatable to a lot of black women. I mean, and, and relatable to... To not only black women but women in general I mean we've had so many responses to people uh, to these women in this story I mean and not just women I must say I mean who told me uh, uh, someone recently told me one of my characters Silver is like the the gay the gay man's dream like you know like how like, so why, like, don't, why, don't, why don't you tell you know? tell readers about these two women just sketch okay. them out very quickly so there's Pumpkin, and she's the, the keeper of Paradise Blue. She's, she's in a relationship with the character Blue, um, and she takes care of the club. You know, she's in the traditional homemaker role, where she's taking care of all the men and, making, and taking care of the women that come there. She does all of the chores. She does the cooking. She takes care of the, and she's But what she also is is a great poet, and mm-hmm. she has a great voice inside of her that the men actually – sort of some of the men actually see and hear in her but she doesn't see and hear in herself and as the story unfolds Pumpkin is sort of finding her awakening as a woman to not always be doing the bidding of the men in this story but also where she's serving herself whereas Silver is a character who comes in she's a woman who is on her own she's independent she doesn't have a, a man by her side at all she has her own money she knows what she wants she comes in she's sexually free mm-hmm. she comes in and she says what she wants, bold and plain. She goes buck up against the men, toe to toe with them, and they have all kinds of reactions to her. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, um, which is some of them are intrigued, some of them are like, you know, in, enamored with her, you know, uh, passioned by her, and some of them are completely threatened and and uh, fearful of her, and fear and feel like she's bad luck and she's um, she's no good, and they they want to stay free of her, and so. Uh, those two women have so much going on in the story, uh, but but Silver, because she's a badass woman, and she <laughs> she has. I, I wrote her her character as having a mean walk. That's like yes. in the character description. <laughs> so she has this thing called the Spider Walk. <laughs> they call her Spider Woman, and she walks with her like in her best kiss of the Spider Woman that she has, you know, <laughs> and she does this walk that entrances everybody. Um, and so that's the, the 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 way she owns the catwalk, if you will. <laughs> I have been told by not just women but men that she is an inspiration. <laughs> you have worked uh, at least twice with Ruben uh, Santiago Hudson, and can you just talk a little bit about the the nature of that relationship? Why you feel so comfortable trusting him with your place? Well, you know, Ruben and I, I, I really feel, I feel like we are partners in, in the best sense of the, the word. You know, um, 
uh, obviously he's a he's an elder to me in a lot of ways. He's mm-hmm. older. He's lived more. He's he's you know a legend in theater already. Um, but Ruben has he had a close relationship to August Wilson, mm-hmm. and I feel that I write in the in in the tradition of many artists. August is one of them, um, and so I felt like he would you know be a great he would just have a great understanding and capacity of the tradition that I write in. But then very closely, Ruben is also, you know, he, he went to school, he went to college in Detroit. He's sort of like an adopted son of Detroit. He knows the city. Sometimes he knows things I don't know about my <laughs> own city, you know. And um, and so it just fit. And then I bring, and he, he has such a strong, he's such a strong visionary. Um, and I'm a strong personality and a strong woman, and he's a strong man. <laughs> and together, we are like silver and blue. No, uh, together, we, you know. We uh, we bring our strong ideas to the table, and we 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 argue, and we laugh, and we both believe in I think um, the spirit and the and the the honoring of the people that we're telling the stories about. Like we have, we share that passion, and we share a great respect for each other. So it I think and and our friction makes us create some of the best stuff together. So I love working with him because I think we know how to push my work forward together Hmm. Uh, and he's a master of what he does man he's a master I have one final question that I have to ask you you sort of referenced it earlier that you're working on uh, the musical about the temptations um, ain't too proud to beg could you say a little bit about how that came about and when we might see it here in New York okay I'll do my best (laughs) (laughs) Um, so the musical is called Ain't Too Proud. People always call it Ain't Too Proud to Beg. I'm like, yes, I know. I mean, that's the Temptation song. Um, they're they're correcting it for me, right? <laughs> uh, but but the but the the musical is called Ain't Too Proud. Okay. And I think it because it has great significance of it's it's mostly about pride mm-hmm. that that is a big part of the story. You know, I I was approached by two producers, Tom um, Tom Hulse and Ira Pittleman, who have produced a lot of things on Broadway, uh, and Des McEnough, who is a director mm-hmm. uh, of many things, but of Jersey Boys in particular. And they they you know I was approached by the two producers because they were in conversations with Otis Williams of the Temptations and Shelley Berger, who is a Temptations um, manager. They wanted to do this musical on the Temptations, and so I was the first writer they thought of being has written so many things from Detroit um, and telling Detroit stories and, and it, it's just honestly it feels like the perfect musical for me to, this is my first musical and it's the perfect one for me I mean I know this story already I grew up on the Temptations music and mm-hmm. so getting to be a part of like building Otis Williams legacy even further than it already is so it, that's just been an honor uh, and it's we're we're going to D.C. right now. We're about to open at the Kennedy Center in D.C. We're coming out to L.A. and Toronto, and then the goal is to come back um, to New York. So you know, will us back to New York? <laughs> I will. I will. And when 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 you do come back to New York, I hope you'll come back and and talk to us about uh, about that show. I would love to. But in the meantime, folks have. A few more chances to see uh, Paradise Blue uh, at at Signature, and and I hope they do. And and thank you for taking the time to talk to us about it. Thank you so very much. I'm so honored to have be able to talk to you about my work. And thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back next time. 
and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway Radio podcasts, which you can find on broadwayradio.com. <laughs>